Have you um, ever watched a TV show or maybe a television series, and uh, once you finished it, um, you thought to yourself, wow, that was so good. That was so good. I think I would actually watch the entire thing again. Or, or maybe for you, it was a book, and, and you read the book, and you got to the last chapter, and you got to the last word, and then you closed the book, and you thought to yourself, this book was so good, I would actually read the entire book all over again. And then sometime in the future, maybe the near future, or maybe sometime, you know, in the distant future, when you actually did watch the series again, or you reread the book again, perhaps to your own surprise, you actually thought it was better the second time around than what it was the first time. And the reason for this, I think, just based on my own experience, but I think it's, it's probably true for all of us. When we watched the series or we reread the book for the second time, we were able to see things the second time around that we didn't even know to look for the first time around. Uh, we hear things the second time that we didn't even know to listen for the first time around. We pick up on things the second time around that we couldn't have possibly picked up on the first time through. And when we think about that, we should all ask the question, well, why is that? And, and the answer is really simple. It's because the second time around, we knew the story. We knew the storyline. And knowing the story and the storyline, it helps us to read and understand and appreciate the story better. It actually helps us read between the lines of the story better. And the reason for this is something that's really simple at first glance, but it's really profound when we think about it, uh, especially when we think about the consequences of this statement. All content has a context. All content has a context, whatever the content is, whether it's spoken content, written content, you know, video content, all content has a context. That means that all content, it flows from a particular frame of reference. It's built with a certain background in mind and it comes up from a specific setting of time and place. It's influenced by perspective and by person and persons and, and history. And, and there's so much that goes into content as it relates to context. Now. The reason that context is so important is that it actually helps us understand the intent behind the content. Uh, it's almost really impossible for us to really grasp the intent of content without knowing something about the context. And the context helps us to understand the content better. Um, it's also connected to this idea that every author uh, has an agenda. Every author has an agenda. Uh, every author has a particular story that he or she wants to tell. And once you understand the story that he or she is wanting to tell or the story they are telling, then you begin to pick up on things and I begin to pick up on things in the story that we could never ever been, you know, we could have seen before. Uh, we see things like allusions or uh, references or foreshadowing or allegory and metaphor and symbolism and motifs and, you know, all of those things. Uh, we, we begin to be able to see those things and pick up on those things and, and they begin to just, you know, raise up from the page because we understand a little bit about the agenda of the author. We know something about the story they're wanting to tell. And the reason that I start here today in, in, in the first part of this message with this is because when we know the context of the content and the agenda of the author, we will better understand the story being told. Uh, once we understand these things, we are able to understand the story better, make sense of it. Uh, we're in a much better position to interpret the meaning and the message that we're reading or the, the message that we're hearing. And, and all of these things, context, 
you know, of the content and the agenda of the author. It, it helps us see with greater detail the story as it was meant to be told and to better see and understand the meaning behind the story that's being told. And the reason that I point this out, because this is absolutely true as it relates to the scriptures, and it's absolutely true as it relates to the gospel of Matthew that we're talking about in this series called The Kingdom, because we're working our way through the gospel of Matthew. And to be able to understand the gospel of Matthew better, we've got to know something about context, and we've got to know something about the agenda behind why Matthew is writing what he is writing. Uh, Matthew is telling a very particular story. Uh, he's telling the story of things that happened, actually, you know, actual historical events. So his gospel is a historical biography of sorts, and, and he's got a particular agenda, and he's writing from a particular context, which is first century Judaism, and he's writing within the context of an ongoing storyline that, you know, began in the Old Testament. And, and so there's all of these things going on with the context and, and the agenda that Matthew has. So he's telling a story. And as we've discussed, the story that he's trying to tell is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, it's come near. The kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near. And Matthew wants us to know that there would be no neutral ground, that people would have to choose sides and people would have to make decisions and people would be confronted with the opportunity to reorganize their lives around the vision and the values and the law of this new king in this new kingdom. And so that's the story that Matthew's telling. But this is really, this is really great and, and, and incredibly interesting. The story that he's telling, he, he tells it in some really creative ways. And he tells this story with different layers. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that Matthew is doing in, in the early part of his gospel and really throughout his gospel is that he's drawing a connection between the Old Testament Moses and Jesus. Uh, in chapter 2, you'll remember we talked about this. In chapter 2, he tells us the story about Jesus being born, the newborn king of the Jews, the Magi who come from the east, and, you know, the star, and King Herod. He, he tells us that story, but there's some things that happen in chapter 2 which are really echoes uh, of, this, of things that happened in the early part of Moses' life when he was first born. When Jesus is born in Matthew chapter 2, there's an evil king, that's Herod, and there's the slaughtering of children. Because Herod, he, he was intimidated by this idea of the newborn king of the Jews. So, you know, all the baby boys two years old and younger in and around Bethlehem, he had killed. And if you'll remember in Moses' story, uh, when he was born, and essentially, you know, from, from the Disney movie, you know, he, he's a prince of Egypt because he gets adopted into Pharaoh's family. But when he's born, uh, Pharaoh, who is the evil king uh, in that particular story, there is the slaughtering of children uh, in the early part of Exodus uh, in Moses' story, just like in the story of Jesus. And then uh, Matthew tells us that when all of this danger is breaking out in and around Bethlehem, uh, God warns Joseph in a dream to take, you know, Jesus and his mother Mary and go to Egypt where things are safe. And then when things got safe, uh, he told Joseph in a dream, hey, it's safe to come back. And then Matthew tells us that in order to fulfill the words of the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus and his family comes up out of Egypt and then they move to Nazareth. 
And then the next picture that we have of Jesus who's just come out of, you know, Egypt is that he goes into the waters of the Jordan River and he's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, which again mirrors the story of Moses because once Moses leads the nation of Israel, once they are called out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, which was a symbolic baptism of sorts. And then after Moses and the nation of Israel went through the Red Sea, they would then wander for 40 years in the wilderness where they would be tested. And then again, back to Matthew in his part of the story, after Jesus is baptized, he emerges out of the waters of the Jordan and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tested. So, so there's all of these different layers to what Matthew is telling us so that we can better understand the story that he's actually communicating to us. So there's context and there's an agenda. And this brings us to where we are today in chapter five, because the layers of this story continue between Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. And this is how Matthew begins. He says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, because you know crowds like to follow Jesus around, he's been not only preaching the good news of the kingdom, but he's also been healing all kinds of sickness and disease. So there's a large crowd of people who keep following Jesus around. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain. He went up on the mountainside. And again, this is an echo. This is reminiscent of Moses going up on Mount Sinai where he will receive the law for Israel. Uh, Israel who were to be a kingdom of priests. And, And so Moses goes up on the mountain. He meets with God and he brings down the law for the nation of Israel, God's people. And here in Matthew's story, Jesus, he sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. So Jesus, he goes up on the mountain and he's not going up on the mountain uh, to get laws. He's not going up on the mountain like Moses to bring down a set of laws, but Jesus in, in a different way, in a better way, Jesus up on this mountain begins to cast a vision for life in God's kingdom, what it looks like in God's kingdom today and what it will look like ultimately when the kingdom of God fully comes. What life looks like when God is in control. And so Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we call it, and it probably just wasn't one large sermon. Uh, It was probably a collection of Jesus's teaching that he taught over and over again that Matthew, he he puts together in in one large discourse uh, to make it easier for the reader and to make it easier uh, for readers to memorize and for hearers to memorize. So when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, this is really important. So I just need everybody just to stop what you're doing for a moment and and, and don't miss this. Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, they are not a a, a set of checklists. They're they're not boxes that we're supposed to check off. Uh, They're not rules. They're not laws. They are ideals. Uh, They are the ethical implications of the values within God's kingdom. They're values in God's kingdom. And out of these values come ethics. And these ethics help shed light on how we are to live as members of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus's words that he's about to give us, this Sermon on the Mount that many of us have heard many, many times and and too many Christians misunderstand it. And there's a lot of disagreement about how to read it. 
But, but the one thing that I'm absolutely convinced about, this, this is not Jesus's way of teaching us how to get into the kingdom of God. He's talking to disciples who have already been brought into the kingdom of God. So the Sermon on the Mount is not about, you know, how to get into the kingdom of God. It's not about how to get God to love you because God already does. It's not about how to get God to accept you because he already has. And the Sermon on the Mount is certainly not a heavy yoke or a difficult burden because Jesus himself said, hey, I've not come to lay a heavy yoke on you. I've come to give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So Jesus is not shackling us with another law. He came to set us free from the law of Moses. He came to set us free from the condemnation that comes from the Old Testament law. So he's not coming to give us a brand new yoke and burden uh, that's heavy and difficult. Uh, he, he's, not, he's not showing us you know, these are the laws of my kingdom. It's not that at all. Uh, but even though it's not that, uh, we're gonna find that what Jesus does teach us and what Jesus does say, it, it is an impossible standard to embody perfectly. But at the same time, even though we cannot, you know, live up to the Sermon on the Mount perfectly all the time, um, the Sermon on the Mount and the words that we're about to look at, they're not meant to guilt us. They're not meant to shame us but they're intended to guide us and to inform us uh, and to show us what life looks like when God reigns, when Jesus is our king. What does it look like when Jesus is king and God is reigning? When heaven comes to earth, what does it look like? And so Jesus's words, it's gonna demonstrate for us what it looks like when we begin to value as citizens of the kingdom, what the king himself values. Jesus is gonna demonstrate what it looks like for all of us when we actually seek first the kingdom of God. And again, I just wanna say this because this is so important. The Sermon on the Mount, it's not a code of new laws for Christians. It's not a set of laws or checklists. It's the ethics of the kingdom. It's the values of the kingdom that flows out of the one law of God's kingdom. You say, well, what's the one law of God's kingdom? Well, the one law of God's kingdom is to love God and love others. Jesus was so clear about this throughout his teaching. What's the most important thing? He said to love God and love others. He actually said this was the point of the entire Old Testament law and prophets. If you wanna know what God has always wanted for his people, it's that they would love God and that they would love others. And so when it comes to law, when it comes to laws, that's kind of like the bottom floor. It's about how far you can go. Uh, and when it comes to God's kingdom, you can do whatever you wanna do as long as you don't unlove God and as long as you don't unlove anybody else by doing what you wanna do. Uh, as long as you don't hurt yourself and as long as you don't hurt other people and as long as you don't break God's heart, you can do whatever you wanna do. Uh, that's kind of the law of God's kingdom. But ethics come along. Ethics, the point of ethics is to bring a little bit more direction about how we live our lives in light of love God and love others. Ethics, it, it, they're all about how high can you go. They're, they're not binding laws. Uh, they're wisdom, they're, they're best practices, they're ideals to strive for. And so, you know, with all of this in mind, Jesus, he, he's up there on the mountain and he speaks to his disciples then and he speaks to all of uh, those of us who are disciples of his today. And he says to us, he says, blessed, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, fortunate are those. 
Happy are those. Blessed are those. Uh, the people who are truly flourishing uh, and who will flourish are those who are poor in spirit. He said, well, what is Jesus talking about and what, he, what is he trying to communicate? Jesus was saying the most happy people, the most blessed people, the most fortunate people, the people who will flourish the most are those who are poor in spirit, who realize they don't have it all together. Uh, he's not talking about poor in spirit being something weak. He's not talking about self-hatred. He's not talking about low self-esteem. He's not talking about lacking confidence. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about a person. He's talking about a man. He's talking about a woman. He's talking about a teenager who doesn't feel pressured to perform or pretend to be something they're not. Uh, they are poor in spirit. Uh, he's saying, you know, the person who's truly at a disadvantage, the person who's truly not happy, the person who is really less fortunate, it's the person who is so guarded, uh, who wants to appear better than what they really are, who never wants to let anybody know that they are not all together, that, that they don't wanna ever let anybody else know that they're broken because those are the people who are not ever truly loved because you can't truly be loved until you're truly known. And when you are not poor in spirit, you, you are fearful, you are afraid, you're intimidated to let anybody know that you're jacked up, you're screwed up, you've got problems, you are a bit of a mess. And, and the danger of that is when you don't let anybody truly know you, no one can truly love you. And so people who are not poor in spirit, they go through life and they never know the joy of truly being loved. People who are poor in spirit, they own their brokenness. They own their mess. And they let people know that so that people can love them in spite of their mess, in spite of their brokenness. And Jesus says, those are the people who are really fortunate. Those are the people who are positioned for true happiness because they're not the people who go through life guarding, trying to be something they're not, looking down their self-righteous noses at people who are different than they are, who look different than they are, who sin differently than they do in order to feel better about themselves. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Jesus would, he would reiterate this, you know, oftentimes in his ministry. In Luke chapter 18, he tells the story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And, and if you remember the story, uh, the Pharisee, he, he started to pray and he looked over and he saw the tax collector and he said, Lord, I just, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful I'm not like him. I'm so grateful I don't sin like him. I'm so grateful that I'm not a gutter dweller like him. And he was so just trying to build up his own self-worth by you know, beating down somebody else. He, he was the opposite of poor in spirit. But then the tax collector, when he prayed, he just simply said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that tax collector, that's what Jesus is talking about poor in spirit, that we own our brokenness. We own our mess. And when we do, it opens our hands to the grace of God. As long as we hide our brokenness, as long as we hide our mess, we shut ourselves off from the grace of God. And that's the reason that Jesus said that the tax collector was the one who went home justified. It was Jesus's teaching over and over again that the humble, those are the ones who would be lifted up. It would be the proud the arrogant, the self-righteous who would be brought low. The poor in spirit would be lifted up. But those who were arrogant, who were self-obsessed with their own self-image and opinions of others, 
of what people thought about them and what people said about them to the point that they were so self-obsessed that they had no room for God. God had become irrelevant in their life because they were so haughty, so proud, so arrogant. Jesus said, those are the less fortunate ones. Those are the ones to be pitied. But blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those, those are fortunate. And then he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, again, Jesus isn't glamorizing self-pity. He's not spiritualizing sadness. He's not inviting us to walk around, woe is me, sackcloth, and ashes. Um, This is an announcement. This is a pronouncement that in the kingdom of God to come, there's comfort for all the things that have been wrong in this life. But in the meantime, Jesus is also talking about at the same time, he says, fortunate are those Fortunate is the man, fortunate is the woman, fortunate is the individual whose heart breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. Fortunate and happy are the people whose hearts are able to break for the very things that break the heart of God, who are still bothered by acts of injustice in the world, acts of discrimination in the world, acts of senseless violence in the world. Jesus said, fortunate are you If the injustice and the discrimination and the violence and the pain and the death and the disease of this world, fortunate are you if it breaks your heart because you haven't grown so cynical that you no longer care. You've not grown so callous that you no longer feel. You've not grown so political or so nationalistic as some people in our own country seemingly has become because in recent days, if I've heard one person say it, I've heard a dozen people say it. Even making speeches, talking about why should we care? Why should we care about people 6,000 miles away? Why should we care about what happens to people on the other side of the planet? Shouldn't we just care about what's happening in our own backyard? Well, the answer is we should be caring about what's happening in our backyard, but we also care about what happens 6,000 miles away. We also care about what happens halfway around the world because God cares about what only what what happens halfway around the world and what happens on the other side of the world and God also cares about what happens in our own backyard and he's talking about fortunate are the people who are not so cynical and not so callous that they've just shut their heart off to the injustice in the world among the nations uh, to what sin can do in communities and in families and among friends what sin in our world does to children to the innocent Jesus said, fortunate are you if those things still break your heart because your heart is still broken for the things that break God's heart. And the good news is in the kingdom of God to come, all those wrongs will be made right. But in the meantime, there's the comfort of knowing that one day all the wrongs will be made right. But you're fortunate because your heart is in step with God's heart and you are blessed because of it and you are better suited for true happiness and true joy. Jesus said, this is what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. You care. You care when the innocent suffer. You care when there's oppression. You care when there's senseless violence. You care when people are hungry. You care because God cares. Jesus goes on, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Uh, He says, fortunate are you you if you have humility. Um, not that you're weak, uh, not that you're spineless, uh, not that you let people roll all over you, 
but you are a person of humility. And, and it's really a person of gentleness, a person who has power, <laughs> but you have power under control. It's kind of like the picture of a, of a grown adult, you know, a grown adult who's holding a, a newborn baby and, and the power of that grown adult could overpower uh, that newborn baby at any moment. Uh, the power of that adult could hurt, uh, could damage, could kill that newborn baby at any moment, but, but there's gentleness, there's power under control. And Jesus is talking about how fortunate it is to be a person who is under control. You have power. You have the power to think, you have the power to speak, you have the power to act, you have the power to react, but yet your power is under control. You can control your emotions, you have control over your words. You can have conversations with people that you disagree with and you don't have to insult them because you have self-restraint. Um, fortunate is the person Jesus is talking about who's not abrasive, who's not divisive, who's able to work with all kinds of people for, you know, to find common ground in order to advance the common good. Uh, Jesus said, you're fortunate. You're fortunate if you're able to self-control you're fortunate if you're able to hold your words in, if you are you know, able to resist the temptation to react in a way that's unhealthy and unloving. Uh, Jesus said, you're fortunate, you're blessed. <laughs> your, your position for true happiness and true joy. Jesus goes on, he says, in the kingdom of God, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or another way to, to, to say this is who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Because one day in the kingdom of God, when it fully comes, there will be perfect justice in the world because the king will rule in righteousness and justice forevermore. But Jesus is talking about how fortunate you are, how fortunate I am, how fortunate we are. If, if we are a kingdom people who actually care about justice in this world, we care about things being done the right way for all people. We actually care that systems are just, that opportunities are just, that outcomes are just. Uh, the idea of justice for all, it's, it's not an American ideal. It's actually a kingdom ideal because God is for justice for all. And one day in the kingdom of God, when sin is abolished and sorrow is abolished and death is abolished, there is justice. There's justice for all and every wrong thing is made Right, and Jesus says, hey, if you care about justice in the world, if you care about things being done the right way for all people in this world, just not your country, just not your community, just not your family, if you actually care about that, he says, you should, because that's one of the values, that's the ethic of the kingdom of God. The value, one of the values in the kingdom of God, it's justice, and out of that value of justice, the ethics of the kingdom says we care, we get involved, we advocate when necessary, we involve ourselves to bring about change when possible. Jesus says, you're fortunate if you care about what's right and what's just in this world. He goes on, he says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Fortunate is the person who doesn't treat people as they deserve. Happy and joyful is the person who extends grace. Uh, happy is the person who can get over it and move past it. You know who's miserable in the world? People who can't get over things, people who can't move past it. Jesus said, you're very fortunate 
If you're able to be merciful because you won't be held hostage by bitterness. You won't be held hostage by resentfulness. You, you won't walk around with a constant scorecard of, of who's winning and who's losing in your life, uh, of knowing who you're upset with and, and who you're offended at. You have no blacklist because you've not put anybody on your blacklist. You're, you're merciful. And because you are merciful, you've actually invited diversity in your life. You've not surrounded yourself with sameness because how boring is that just to be with people who look like you, sound like you, and agree with every opinion that you basically have on everything that's important. Jesus says you're fortunate if you're merciful because you're not gonna be easily offended. People who go through life easily offended. Oh, they talked to me. They didn't talk to me. Oh, I wonder what they were doing last night and why weren't we invited? You know, not easily offended always needing apologies from people, always knowing who owes you an apology. Jesus said, that is a miserable way to live. That is not a blessed way to live. It is not a fortunate way to live, but fortunate are those who are merciful because they go through life giving grace. They go through life giving forgiveness. They go through life and they're able to get over it and move past the things that hold other people up. So Jesus says, if you have mercy, if you show mercy, if you give mercy, you are fortunate because you are representing the values and the ethics of the kingdom of God that flow out of the law of loving God and loving others. He keeps going. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Fortunate or happy are those who do the right thing for the right reason. Um, fortunate, happy are those whose faith might be a struggle, but at least it's not a show. At least it's not put on. At least it's not pretend. Jesus isn't talking about people who are perfect because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect and none of us are perfect and you're never going to meet a perfect person in this life. The only perfect one, his name was Jesus. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that I'm perfect, but it's that their faith is authentic. Their faith is genuine. There's no pretend, there, there, there's no putting on a show, there's no putting on a mask, there's no playing a part. He says, authentic struggling faith is so much better than a faith that seems all together from someone who's pretending to have faith, but they have no faith at all. Jesus says, fortunate are you who have authentic faith, genuine faith in God, though your life may still be a mess. And though you may still have struggle after struggle after struggle after struggle, you're fortunate because of your authenticity. You're fortunate because your faith is genuine. Then he moves on. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Happy are those who don't sow division. Uh, happy are those who don't act or speak divisively. Uh, fortunate are those, happy are those uh, who sow peace, uh, who build bridges, uh, who work to bring reconciliation who make every effort, every effort to live in peace with every person. He says, that's what life in the kingdom of God looks like. We are a people of peace. We are a people who bring people together. We are a people who invite different people to our tables. We sow peace. We don't sow discord. 
We don't sow discord by talking about people behind their back. We don't sow discord by questioning people's motives. We sow peace by giving the benefit of the doubt. We sow peace by trying to understand what we don't understand. We sow peace by trying to get to know those who are different from us so that we can understand why their perspective is so different from our own. We are bridge builders. We are agents of reconciliation. And when we act in that capacity, Jesus said, we are happier. We are living our best life. We are living in the kingdom of God the way that citizens of the kingdom should live their lives. He continues with talking about these ethics and and these values. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those, fortunate are those who are actually self-confident enough, who are actually confident enough in their faith who actually love God and love others enough that they're willing to be countercultural. They're willing to swim upstream. They're willing to be different, to stand out, not to adopt the evolving you know, morals of culture, uh, but to live under the law of God's kingdom, to live and embrace the ethics and the values of God's kingdom, to actually be willing to be uncommonly good Uh, maybe even considered a bit weird uh, by culture's standards because we do things that most people don't do and we refuse to say things that a lot of people are so willing to say. Uh, He's talking about people. He's talking about men and women. He's he's talking about people who will pursue what's right even though it costs them personally. And and so Jesus, he, he gives us these, what's called the Beatitudes and he's unpacking the values and the ethics of the kingdom. Uh, that flow out of the law of the kingdom, which is to love God and love others. And so as Jesus comes out of these beatitudes, uh, as he tells us who the fortunate ones are and how to live our best life and how to live and truly be happy, um, you know, as it relates to happiness in the kingdom of God, Jesus moves on, he starts talking about influence. And you've heard these verses before. He says, well, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And it's really important for us to understand that he said this just after he said all the things that we just looked at. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world when you live out these values and you live out these ethics. When you live a life that, you know, values humility and peace and mercy and authenticity and justice. When you you value these things and you live out the ethics that flow out of those values, he says, then you become the salt of the earth and you become the light of the world. You become the salt of the earth that holds back corruption. You become the light of the world that holds back darkness. When you embrace these values and these ethics, when you live them out, that's when I become salt and light. You don't become salt and light just because of what you believe. And you don't become salt and light just because of what you do on Sunday. He says, but my people, the citizens of the kingdom, we become salt and light when we embrace and practice these ethics and these values. That's when we hold back corruption. That's when we shine light into darkness. So he says, let your light then shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Because when you live out these things, you are bringing the kingdom of God near to people. When you live out these things and I live out these things, when these ethics and these values of Jesus become my ethics and values, then heaven comes near. Every time that we behave in the way that Jesus is teaching us to behave, heaven comes a little closer to earth. The king comes close to people. 
for we are his hands and his feet. He gets to the very end and he sums up everything that he has said. And he sums it up this way. So, in everything, do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. No longer treat them as they had treated you, but you treat them the way that you would want them to treat you. Why, why would you forgive them? Because you would want to be forgiven. Why show them grace? Because you would want grace. Why be kind? Because you would want to be kind. Why not talk behind their back? Because you wouldn't want somebody talking behind your back. Why would you give the benefit of the doubt? Because you hope people would give you the benefit of the doubt. Jesus said, you do for others what you would want them to do for you. And again, Jesus reminds us that the point of our faith is to love God and to love others. And Jesus said, if we don't love others this way, he says, we may not have faith the faith that Jesus has invited us to. So Jesus taught that it's our love for people that demonstrates and authenticates our love for God, that shows that we have truly adopted the greatest value in the kingdom of God, which is others, others. And the greatest value in the kingdom of God is you and me and us. God wants us to love him by the way that we treat and love and show grace and mercy to each other. So when you put all that together, here's what we begin to understand. Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount are the ethical implications of the one law of God's kingdom, love. It's how we apply the law of love in the kingdom of God. It's the values of justice and mercy and truth and humility and the ethics that are connected a love that says, I'm going to seek your highest good. I'm going to seek your highest good. And if it's not in your best interest, it's not best for me. If it's not best for you, it's certainly not best for me. And that type of love, Jesus knew it would govern our decisions. It would govern our behavior. So we're no longer willing to do that which hurts ourselves or hurts someone else because that's what sin does. Sin always hurts us and sin always hurts somebody else. Sin always brings death. It's love that seeks life. It's love that seeks the highest good. It's a love that's expressed through these values of humility and authenticity and justice and mercy and forgiveness and self-control and all the ethical implications of those values a love for God that works itself out in the way that we love each other. And when we do that, when we show grace and mercy and act in humility and exemplify self-control, when we resist revenge and we forgive those who have done us wrong, when we put others first, heaven comes to earth. Then Jesus closes his sermon and he says, there's two gates, there's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. And the wide gate is part of a wide road, a broad way that lots of people are on. And everybody's just, they can't wait to get through that broad gate, but there's a narrow road that leads through a narrow gate. And it's a difficult way. It's a demanding way, but it leads to life and not many there will be found that go through it. He talks about two prophets at the end of his sermon, the one who is true and the one who's false. He talks about two trees one who produces good fruit and one that produces bad fruit. And Jesus ends his message that way because his whole message has been, follow me 
don't follow them. Follow me, don't follow them. Say, who was them? The religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the Broadway. They were the frost prophets. They were the bad fruit. And so just like Moses, when he stood before the nation of Israel and he said, on this day, I'm gonna give you two choices, life and death. And I'm gonna beg you to choose life, not death. Jesus, he closes his sermon and he says, I give you two choices. You can either build your life on the sand or you can build it on the rock. The sand is religion. The sand is the temple. The sand are all the sacrifices of the temple system, but the rock, that's me. The rock are my words. And if you'll build your life on my words, adopt my values, live under my command, if you will embrace these ethics, your life will flourish. And even though you may have storms and difficulties, your faith will survive life. Your faith won't become a casualty of life. And so Jesus, he presents Jesus, or Matthew rather, presents Jesus as the new Moses who's leading a brand new Exodus, who's announcing a new kingdom with a new commandment, inaugurating a new covenant that will kickstart a new creation, that will kickstart, that will culminate one day in a new heavens and a new earth. And when Jesus finishes his sermon, the people said, He speaks as one who has authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He spoke as one with authority because he spoke as the king. And he says, this is the law of my kingdom. And because of the law of my kingdom, there are values and there are ethics that I'm I'm inviting you to embrace and live out. And when you do, little bit of heaven comes to earth and they will see your good works and they will glorify your father who is in heaven. Let's bow our heads together. Let's close our eyes at all of our churches. Heavenly father, let us hear the invitation of Jesus today. He says, we can either build our lives upon the sand, upon our own ideas, our own version of truth, upon religion, upon rituals and traditions, or we can build our lives upon the rock. Jesus himself, his words, his truth, his definitions for right and wrong, his values, those ethics that come out of the values of his kingdom. God, I pray that we would build our lives upon the rock, that we would live out these values and these ethics in order to bring heaven just a little closer to earth, knowing that one day when the kingdom of God fully comes, that's what life's gonna be like. But until then, let us do the hard work of doing our best to love God and to love others, to embrace what is most valuable to you and to find ways to practically live out these ethics in our day-to-day lives. So Father, help us to build our lives upon this, knowing that it will stand the test of time. We pray it in Jesus' name.